Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Journalist Eileen Ormsby has been accused of running the world's most successful murder-for-hire website. Now, it's not true, but it is the price she paid for exposing one of the largest scams on the dark web, a place where Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies allow you to trade in drugs, guns, and even human trafficking without exposure. In her latest book, The Darkest Web, Eileen looks at the deaths, drugs, and destroyed lives of the other side of the internet. Hello, Eileen. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, James. Now, Eileen, I think the best place to start is for you to explain to me what drove you to go online and try and find a hitman to kill someone who was already dead. Well, that happened about five years ago. Um, I was looking at all different things on the dark web, and one of the things that kept coming up over and over again was you can hire a hitman on the dark web, and I did not believe it. And so I, I went to one of the ones that was advertising and I thought, well, I'll try to hire a hitman, but um, I don't want to actually put anyone in danger. Therefore, I will supply the photograph and details of someone who is already dead, who was my former partner. Um, <laughs> and But sure enough, uh, I discovered that, that that hitman site was a scam indeed. How do you go about this? You've written in the book that you started trying to set up a false ID and you had to register for Bitcoin accounts. So what's the process you followed on the dark web to contact these murder-for-hire sites? Um, well, it was really just uh, logging onto the dark web. So the, the, getting onto the dark web is quite easy. You, you download a special software. The most common one is called Tor. There's nothing illegal about Tor. But once you've downloaded it to your computer, you can access websites that you can't access on the normal web, that you can't Google for. Um, and you can tell that it's a dark website because instead of a signifier like .com or .org, it has at the end .onion. And that's how you know that you're on a dark website. And so if you try to click on a, an Onion link from a normal uh, browser, it won't go anywhere. It'll say not connected. So you need this special software to get there. Once you're there, you can find these places that um, are they're called hidden services is their uh, formal name. And it's because the uh, the visitor is hidden from the host and the host is hidden from the visitor. But other than that, it's out in plain sight. So you found it a bit difficult to find someone to take up this mysterious hit that you were planning at the time. Um, one or two came back to you and said they couldn't do it because you're too far away in Australia, uh, which seemed very decent of them. And another one you suggested may have actually been a honeypot for a, a police service of some sort. Um well, you know, any of these could be honeypots. I don't, I don't think the police do set up murder for hire sites on the dark web as honeypots. Mm. Um, but I think what they were is scams. So they were there to, um, tell you that you had to pay up front. And then obviously they were never going to carry through with the murder, which is a good scam because, um, you know, there's no way of finding out who they are or where they are in the world. One of these groups was Bessa Mafia. And they came to you and said, absolutely, we can help you. And they seem to be prolific throughout the both on the dark web and also in the, in the normal web in that they had PR people, they had testimonials, they had an entire marketing team working for them. Tell me a little, about, a little bit about Bessa Mafia. 
Yeah, Beast of Mafia came up about um, a few years later. So that was just a couple of years ago. And they were different from the, the other Hitman sites in that they had this completely slick interactive site. And rather than claiming to be uh, a single Hitman that would go around the world and, and um, take people out, they act, acted like any other um, market in, in that you'd, um, you could sign up either as a customer or as a Hitman. And then the uh, Beast of Mafia would take the Bitcoin from the customer, keep it in escrow, and then um, give the job to a hitman somewhere nearby. It's almost like a freelancer for, for assassins. Yeah. And then once the hit was taken out, the idea was uh, Beast of Mafia would take a 20% cut and then the rest would go to the hitman. Right. But what actually was going on? What was actually going on was this was yet again another scam, but it was a really, really good one. And it was one that made the owner of Bisa Mafia um, well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if he held on to that Bitcoin for all this time, it'd be well into the millions of dollars now because of the massive increase in Bitcoin over the last couple of years. Goodness me. So how did it work? What was it? it seems you've written about it as being almost like a Nigerian prince would value this sort of a scam. So could you maybe take us through the process of how he approached you and then why he, how he tried to lure you in? And then we'll maybe get on to how he did lure others. Um, well, he didn't, he didn't approach me to try to lure me in. He actually approached me to ask me to stop writing about his business. So what happened was um, I was contacted by a friendly hacker who had actually hacked into the Bisa Mafia website. And what we found was, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of emails uh, to and from Bisa Mafia from the owner. Uh, his name was Yura. Um, and there was people that had paid Bitcoin, and we could see that because we could see the Bitcoin addresses. They're all unique addresses. And he would just keep on uh, milking them as long as he could for as much money as he could, telling them that the hitman was on the way or um, the hitman had been arrested on the way to, you know, there was always some excuse why the hit hadn't been taken out, but he needed more and more money. So it was very much the, the um, you know, the, the Nigerian prince sort of, scam idea. Yeah, it seemed to be this enormous amount of narrative that this um, that Euro was able to build on an ongoing basis that he always had a great excuse, even though it was broken English, but he always had an excuse the car broke down. Someone wasn't as, as qualified as they said they were. The assassin wasn't able to get there on time, etc. And, and this ability to not only try and persuade the people who were investing, hoping to, to kill somebody, but also the killers themselves. And you've taken an approach of both sides of the coin here which is you've featured T THC John, who's someone who wanted to be an assassin. Mm -hmm. um, how did he come into your life? How did you find him? Well, we, f we found him because his was some of the emails that were um, part of the, the hack. So when we, when we managed to hack into the Beast of Mafia website, we actually got into the back door of their site so that we could sit there and watch in real time as emails were coming and going. Um, and obviously we told the authorities about people who had paid Bitcoin for a murder because these people were obviously very serious about carrying out a murder. You know, even though it wasn't going to happen on Bisa Mafia, they were still paying money in the hope that it would happen. Um, and we also saw that there were people that were signing up and, you know, asking to do, um, to do jobs such as become a hitman. And THC John was one of these guys. And he actually, um, did a couple of test jobs, which was to burn cars um, with the name, you know, Bisa Mafia on a piece of paper in front of it so that people would know that this was a Bisa Mafia job. 
Because this was essentially a marketing tool for Visa Mafia. It was. It was. It was also a warning tool. So um, uh, a fellow by the name of Chris Montero, who was um, who assisted me with the um, getting into the Visa Mafia website, they actually sent him one with his name on it as a warning to stop writing about Visa Mafia, basically to stop saying it was a scam. Mm. You yourself, you were contacted you during this period and said, stop writing about me. How did those suggestions that you stop progress from, you know, stop what you're doing because it's not real, it's not true, to this is the real truth, to then what came next? Could you maybe take me through your relationship with yours? It's quite complicated. Uh, it, it is quite complicated. He, he originally started just by writing to me and saying, look, um, you're wrong, the hack was a fake, uh, it is a real site, you need to stop writing, take down your your um, your articles. Then he progressed to threatening me and he said, you know, um, I, I do have an army of hackers. I do have these people that are willing to do things for me. I'll send them to Australia to beat and rape and um, murder you and, uh, you know, they'll find your family. Um, he said, I know where you are. You don't know where I am, all those sorts of threats. Then uh, as we progressed, um, he eventually calmed down a little bit and then he started, um, you know, sort of saying to me, look, Yes, this is a scam, but what am I doing? I'm scamming murderers out of money. Uh, you know, if they weren't giving me the money, then they'd be paying $10,000 to a real person that w might really actually carry out the hit. Therefore, I'm fleecing them of all the money and, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually doing a good thing. I'm stopping people from being murdered. So, so his justification this was a social service in many ways, like this sort of Robin Hood figure that I'm robbing from the evil and keeping for the, for myself. Well, pretty much, yeah. Wow. And, um, yeah, so, and, you know, after a while I think he really began to believe that. But certainly... Um, in the beginning, it, all it was 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 just about uh, making as much money as possible for himself. While he's making these threats to you, you're still sitting in the back end of his own site, un unbeknownst to him. So you can tell whether it's true or not. But but how did you feel, though, at the same time that you're receiving these threats? Uh, look, I, I sort of felt, felt he was getting a little bit unhinged. And, you know, I not, knew that he did do things like get the cars burned out. Uh, as an advertisement for him. So it wasn't beyond the realms of possibility that he could go one step further and have someone, you know, visit me and beat me up. But I still, you know, I knew from watching him, uh, you know, through through his site uh, that he didn't really want to hurt anybody. He never really wanted to hurt harm anyone. And when he was giving out instructions to burn out cars, it was always very clear, make sure you don't harm anyone while you do this. But Eileen, one of his tactics really had an impact, which was to essentially burn you reputationally, which was to go online and he started putting, what did he start doing? He started saying that you were actually a co-creator of the Murder for Hire site, didn't he? He did. And that was probably the most dangerous thing he did to me because he was telling um, telling the people that had been scammed that this is the name of the person who's scamming you, that the real owners of Bisa Mafia are Eileen Ormsby and Chris Montero. And they're the people that are scamming you. So go find them if you're upset about having your money scammed. Uh, and he he put these all over the web, um, these really bizarre articles. And it didn't really worry me because uh, they were so badly written. I thought anyone that just did a quick Google of my name would realise that it was not me and that that was complete rubbish. Then uh, Chris Montero 
got arrested. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, the, the police over there actually did believe uh, someone had done a Google search and thought, oh, this is the owner of Visa Mafia and went and arrested him. So, um, you know, maybe I was too hopeful of the uh, intelligence of people. <laughs> And so what did he, how does he explain himself out of that one? Is, um, it, is it an easy thing to talk yourself out of? Well, it took a couple of days. Like he, was, he was locked up for um, two days all up until they realised that um, it was just a, a ridiculous idea. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it did take him a couple of days and obviously it was not a very comfortable couple of days for him. And what did you do then, Eileen? I mean, I expect you get a phone call or an email from him or someone who represents him saying it's actually gone to that next step now. I got I got a phone call from him right. um, saying, you know, he was a bit freaked out that he'd been arrested and he was quite upset. Um, so we sort of talked through that. I s- still didn't imagine that the Australian Federal Police were going to come knocking down my door, which they didn't. Um, so, yeah. While you were doing all this, you featured the story of Stephen Orwine, who is a, a fellow based in Minnesota who was looking to arrange the murder of his wife. And so while you're investigating Beast Mafia, at the same time he's trying to use Beast Mafia and he's being sucked and drawn in further and further, deeper and deeper into debt through Bitcoin contributions and being led along on this ridiculous story that unfortunately the assassins couldn't get to his door to assassinate his wife. What was it like for you, though, that moment that you heard that she had been killed? It was a shock um, because obviously we'd, we'd gone through all these Beast Mafia files and um, we, we, knew, we knew the names and, and uh, addresses of the targets, not necessarily the people that were taking it out. And um, this Amy Allwine was a target of someone called Dog Day God, he called himself that, and he claimed to be a um, wronged wife and that Amy Allwine had um, stolen this wife's hus- husband from her. Um, so that was one of the ones that we told the authorities in the US and we thought they hadn't done anything about it. So what happened when, when we first got into the back door, um, gathered together all the information of people that had actually paid Bitcoin to have uh, murders carried out and passed them on to the authorities in the, the appropriate countries. And nothing seemed to have happened until we went live with the story and uh, published the story. And then apparently the FBI did actually go to Amy Orwine's house and say, look, someone has taken out a hit online. Um, four years, paid $13,000 for it. And this is what they've said. Do you have any idea who that might be? And she had no idea. There was, uh, you know, the police could find no evidence that she'd ever had an affair. She was a woman of God. Um, she just loved her family. She loved her, her dogs. She, had, she worked with dogs. And there was, um, you know, she had absolutely no idea who it might be. And her husband got all this um, extra security in the, in the house, including a gun. Uh, a shotgun, uh, not a shotgun, a um, pistol. And um, so uh, then next thing you know, uh, rather than um, murder for hire, she's getting emails directly to her saying, kill yourself. If you don't want me to come after your family, you have to kill yourself. Otherwise, you know, bad things are going to happen to your son and your husband and it'll all be your fault. And and this was, was it because Stephen was getting nowhere with Bisa Mafia? He was at the point where he just had to escalate to take a personal hand in this in this death. By that time, he'd read the articles that Bisa Mafia was a fake, right? And so he he went to the next step, which was sending her emails telling her to kill herself, 
Then the next step he took was going to the Dream Market, which was is one of the online drugs markets, and buying a drug called scopolamine. And scopolamine is known as the zombie drug, and it um, takes away a person's free will and makes them hallucinate. And uh, so what he did was feed that to Amy at lunchtime one day and then shot her in the head trying to make it look like a suicide. How did you respond when you first heard? Because you had seen this within the data, as you said. Uh, yeah, so I knew immediately which one it was and I, was, I, I thought that the police hadn't done anything um, because whenever we tried to tell them, they, they wouldn't tell us if they'd done anything at all. And I thought that they'd done nothing. But it did turn out that the FBI had, in fact, contacted her, um, but they just hadn't had any reason to look at her husband uh, as being the one that had paid, paid for her hit. How did they resolve that? Was it just through sheer investigation then, the normal process of a, of a police investigation, looking at the husband, looking at the friends, looking at the family, et cetera, or did they use the material that had been supplied from Bisa Mafia in that back door? The smoking gun was actually the Bitcoin address, so each Bitcoin address is a completely um, unique. And the, in the emails, Dog Day God said, I have paid money into this Bitcoin address. And they found a note of that Bitcoin address somewhere within Stephen or Wine's computers. Right. So they then had intent. They, ha- they had intent they, and they had that link hmm. that he, he actually used that Bitcoin address because there's no way you would have that unique number. It's like 32 digits long. Um, if you hadn't used that Bitcoin address. So this seemed to be essentially the first murder for hire that had come about, even though it wasn't, he'd paid for a murder that never occurred until he committed himself. But how did that affect the site itself and Eura? Um, well, Eura closed down Beast Mafia and then he opened up a new one called Crime Bay, which was exactly the same, uh, same site. And he still got customers. He still managed to get customers and... You know, by that time he was messaging me all the time saying, oh, look, you know, please don't write about Crime Bay. Um, I'm, I'm scamming murderers. I'm doing a right thing. Please please stop writing about it. And it came to a point where we were actually chatting on Google Hangouts. Um, he'd ask me about my family. I'd ask about his. He'd tell me how much money he's making. Um, this isn't some sort of online Stockholm syndrome <laughs> for you, though, is it, Eileen? It sounds terrible. Well, um, Very odd. And, uh, but then he also started... Uh, giving this information directly to the authorities himself. So um, especially with Crime Bay, there's been several arrests around the world because of the information that he has passed on. Do you think the murder of Stephen's wife has in some way inspired him to start doing that, to be yes. a little more proactive? Yeah, he, he seemed actually quite shocked and upset that the murder actually happened. Um, so, yes, I do think that inspired him to be more proactive in providing police with information. Do you still talk to Euro in any way? Yep, yep. Um, so I actually was uh, in London last week uh, filming an episode of, for CBS for 48 hours about the Amy Allwine case and Euro had promised to meet us in London. So they had um, a disguise, uh, a master of disguise on hand there ready to you know disguise him and his voice and everything like that. But then he ditched out at the last minute. Didn't come. <laughs> well, scam is a very busy, busy job. <laughs> but um, as as a gesture of goodwill, he actually told Forty Eight Hours about um, a very recent um, person that had paid 
a t- target that had um, been paid for. And they didn't actually believe it. Just thought, you know, beautiful blonde lady and um, apparently someone had paid $10,000 for her. But they passed that on to the police. And sure enough, next thing you know, there's been an arrest of a nurse in Illinois who um, put out a hit on her doctor lover's wife. And uh, <laughs> it was a real thing. So um, people are still doing it, is still it, falling for it. Is there an opportunity, therefore, for police or... It's, um, criminal services organisations across the world to be setting up these sites to try and catch individuals? I don't think it'd be legal for them to set up the sites. That is oh, entrapment. entrapment. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Whereas, um, you know, Europe passing on information is a different thing. It's, mm-hmm. not, it's not actually the police creating the, the trap. And yet he himself hasn't been charged with anything to date, has he? No one knows who he is. Right. Well, or I suppose if is. you're not going to turn up for your interviews, that's a good way to that's do it. Because right. <laughs> when you reported the information that you were you were tracking um, through Bisa Mafia to the Australian police, they referred you to Scamwatch. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they, they said, um, yeah, your, your query would be better placed with Scamwatch. But uh, to be fair to them, with the Australian targets, nobody had taken that extra step of paying money for it. So there was a lot of people doing tyre kicking and just sort of, you know, curious and putting in orders but not actually paying the Bitcoin. So I don't think they'd, you know, gone that one extra step of really showing intent. This seems to be an interesting choice of lifestyle for you nowadays, Eileen. When we look at your history, and you're a lawyer, you're working for one of the Magic Circle firms of London um, back in the day, and then the global financial crisis hit, and that seemed to change or at least push you down this 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 narrow, dark path that you've ended up investigating. <laughs> so what was it about the global financial crisis that really set you down the path of looking at Bitcoin and the dark web? Well, um, when the GFC hit, as, as you say, I was working for a magic circle firm, which meant I was working for the one percenters. And when the, when the GFC hit, I suddenly had this existential crisis thinking, um, you know, I'm working for the bad guys and I don't feel good about this. You know, when, po- when people are, are losing their houses, we're working for banks and, and funds and that sort of thing. So I just decided, uh, I didn't want to be a lawyer in that, that situation anymore. And I've always wanted to write. So I started writing my first novel, which was a chick lit book, never been published. Um, but I, I also went and did a course at RMIT, professional writing and editing. And it was during that course that um, I had to do a feature article for journalism in the class. And my feature article was on Silk Road, which was the online drugs market. It was still very, very new. Very few people had heard about it. Um, so... I did that article and then that was picked up by Fairfax by the Age Sydney Morning Herald and then they asked me to do more articles about the dark web and I just became the go-to freelancer for the, the dark web for those. And were you inspired by the Gawker article at such? That seemed to be the one that broke Silk Road globally. Gawker did break Silk Road globally, no doubt about that, 1st of June 2011. Um, so that's an online gossip mm. magazine sort of thing. Uh, I wasn't really inspired by the Gawker article. I, I knew about it, of course, but I actually knew people that were using Silk Road because Australians were very, very high users of it, um, you know, for, especially for things like ecstasy and marijuana. It was very, very popular. Um, so I did know people that were using it. I'm a drug law reform advocate. I, I don't believe that the war on drugs is working. I don't believe prohibition works. And seeing something like Silk Road, which had, uh, you know, ratings, it, it, it acted like any e-commerce platform so your sellers had ratings and they all they had uh, going for them was was good service 
And so they tried to out outdo each other on uh, price, quality and service. And it it provided a safer way for people who wanted to buy drugs anyway to obtain those drugs. So it was quite fascinating to me. It sort of gave me a little idea of what a post-prohibition world might look like. And it also had this really robust community that was involved. Um, and I became quite fascinated with that community of uh, of how people organise themselves when there is absolute anonymity. And, um, you know, it was really interesting. These articles ultimately became formed the basis of your first book, which was 2014's Silk Road. And the first third of this one um, is really a follow-up piece to that book, which is to look at not only the... The, the trials of those who were arrested under Silk Road, but then also what came next. The, Silk Road originally seems to be a bit of a utopia. It seemed to have a sense of ideals and values and um, and a belief in, in in what it was trying to achieve. It actually had bans in place for certain narcotics and certainly weapons, etc. things that wouldn't sell. But it all went to hell in a handbasket through greed and hubris um, when people started trying to commit murder. And was it when you look back at those characters who were involved, and Ross Ulbricht um, specifically, what do you think was the driving forces that really brought down Silk Road? Um, look, it it just got so big. It became so uh, so successful. I don't think he ever expected it to blow up like it did and become as massive. And, you know, it was a, a several hundred million dollar business that he was running. So uh, Ross Ulbricht became the target, or the Dread Pirate Roberts, as we knew him back then, was the target of scammers and extortionists. And he was being bombarded all the time with people trying to extort money from him. And he, I, I think he felt that he was backed into a corner when he ordered the first hit that he ordered. Although, you know, it, it was obviously a big line to cross to go from selling drugs to ordering hits on people. And then after that first one, he seemed to be able to very easily order another five. Yeah, he seemed to be running downhill yeah. almost straight away after yes, that. Yes, that's yeah. right. So, um, yeah, and I think he began to believe his own publicity a bit. Okay. You know, because, uh, you know, people people thought of him as this real guru of, uh, you know, they he had a cult-like following. And I think he began to believe, um, you know, in his own publicity. Well, Silk Road really exploded once the Gawker article and then pieces like yours um, went global. And so it became mainstream in many ways. It became the go-to site. And also, I imagine, therefore, the um, various security services were trying to get their hands on it as well. What role did the various agencies of America, those three-letter agencies, play in perhaps, shall we say, orchestrating some of these hits? Uh, well... When, when Silk Road was going, well, it went for like two and a half years with virtually no problems from the outside. We could see no problems that were happening. And we began to think that, oh, maybe the um, authorities are not as interested in it as we thought they might be. Uh, you know, in the big big scheme of things, it's actually a minute part of the dr world drug trade. Uh, then we found out that actually every three-letter agency in the world was uh, throwing massive resources at trying to hunt down the Dread Pirate Roberts and they were also very much involved in the first hit because there was an undercover agent, um, I think he was FBI, the first, or DEA agent, um, that was acting as a large-scale um, cocaine dealer. And he was speaking with Russ Ulbricht and arranged to have a kilo of co uh, cocaine sent to one of... Um, 
the administrators of the site. And when that kilo arrived at the admin site, um, you know, the FBI were there to arrest the guy. His name was Curtis Green. And he immediately handed over all his details of uh, his login details of um, at the site. And then one of the officers involved in that uh, took it upon himself to start stealing all the money that um, people had placed in escrow on the site. And he was just emptying all these accounts. And from Ross Ulbricht's point of view, that was all being done by Curtis Green, his administrator. Right. So he can see who's logging in and taking the money. He knows who that person is, but doesn't realise that it's behind that name is now an agent. No, that's right. A corrupt agent. A corrupt agent yes. who was just stealing all the money for himself. And this is Bitcoin. So this, this is, is early days Bitcoin as well, isn't it? Yeah. Earlier, earlier, earlier days. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, so then uh, Ross Ulbricht, uh asked the uh, cocaine dealer, Nob, to p- uh, put a hit on Curtis Green, not knowing that Nob was another undercover agent who... Um, who said, okay, I'll, I'll take out the hit on Curtis Green. And so they took photos and they, they faked his death and they took photos of it and then sent those to Ross Albrecht and he believed that um, that hit had been carried out and he paid some massive amount of money for it. I think it was $80,000 or something like that. Right, so they just made even more cash here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but but that, that, that $80,000 was official and that went to um, the FBI, the authorities, but uh, the money that was stolen, nobody knew that that was being stolen. And was this the first time they had had to take um, evidence or they had to create evidence of a hit? Because didn't they also do something around the torture of one of the individuals of the team? That was the same guy. Oh, same guy. That's Curtis Green, yeah. Oh, right. He really went through quite a lot of makeup then. (laughs) Yeah, they they, they faked his torture and then his death. So how was Ross brought down at the end of the day? Uh, He was actually brought down when he... um, it was actually a Google search that brought him down in the very end. So um, someone was in Homeland Security, I think it was, was um, uh, Googling when Silk Road was first mentioned and they came down to something in January 2011. On It was a post on um, a Bitcoin forum or a, no, a mushrooms forum, Shumery. And uh, it was a post by someone called Eltoid and said, oh, have you heard of this new place called Silk Road? Here's the address of it. Looks really interesting. And it sounded a lot like someone was spruiking it. And so they went through this Eltoids posts and they found um, quite a few technical posts. And one of them was asking for um, assistance with um, some computer programming. And he put his ad, uh, email address as rossolbricht at gmail.com. So that's when they first got the name Ross Ulbricht. And they were able to uh, start spying on him. They also had an undercover that managed to get a job as an administrator within the site and that person was making sure that uh, Ross was logged in at the time talking to him, so in the back end of Silk Road when he was in a a public library in San Francisco and that's when FBI agents just swooped on him and grabbed his computer while it was still open and he was logged in. And that seems to be the the catch-all when they've grabbed him, when they've grabbed others from Alpha Bay, which followed on later on, which is once the computer's open and they can grab them with the computer open, then the world is open to them as well. That's that's right, because um, ev- every dark web drug, drug lord is going to have a kill switch on his computer, so they have to snatch it without him realising that, you know, that they're grabbing it. Really? So so, so what's that, that kill switch would essentially just wipe all references to themselves or to it the encrypt It had completely encrypted it, right. it, yeah. Right, okay. And what's happened to Ross since? He, he, was, he was picked up 
and then he went to trial. And where is he now? He's in uh, maximum security prison. He's got a double life sentence without any possibility of parole. And Eileen, when you look at that sentence, in the scheme of things and the nature of the fact that there was no murder, there was never a murder committed, he was merely conducting the transactional space of essentially an eBay for, for drugs, what's your personal feeling towards that sentence? Uh, look, I think it was manifestly excessive. Um, I, I, it, it doesn't seem to fit the crime, uh, especially because he was never actually charged with any attempted murders. He was never the, the murder for hire charges never made it to the charge sheet, but they were brought up in his trial, um, you know, to sort of say, oh, this is the sort of person that he is, even though he was never charged with them. Uh, but yeah, he, essentially all he was was running a website where uh, willing buyers, willing sellers got together to buy and sell drugs. So it does seem over the top to have that sort of sentence. When Silk Road fell down, Alpha Bay seemed to be the, the next that rose from the ashes. And it seemed to be a very different operating environment, although far more sophisticated, far more open, and therefore, according to um, Jeff Sessions, I think it was, the Attorney General, um, one of the most dangerous sites on the, in, in the globe because it was allowing everything to be traded. But it too was, was eventually taken down, I think, a year or two ago. Um, what's left? What's the marketplace like now? There are still markets. So Alpha Bay wasn't even the next one after Silk Road. There were, there were several that rose and fell. Um, some of them fell because law enforcement got them. Most of them fell because they went for a year or two. We're, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars going through and it's sitting there in those markets in escrow or in people's accounts. So what happens eventually is an owner just says, there's enough sitting there now. I'm going to take all that Bitcoin and just leave. Right, and so there's so, no, no honour among thieves no, here there, at all. there's which is... none, not, not since Silk Road. So uh, that happened several times where... Um, and something know, like Evolution Marketplace, Evolution was the biggest one probably, but there was another one called Sheep. Um, and there, there were a few of them that just decided uh, going to take all the money and run. A couple closed down and said, look... We're, we're going to close down. The, we've made enough money. The heat's coming on us. Everybody take their money out and they, they close down honourably. And others were uh, taken down by authorities. Mm. But there are still markets going now. Do they have the, the, the reach of the Alpha Bays and the Silk Road or are they more specialist markets nowadays? There's a bit of both. So there's still um, a couple of mass markets that sell all sorts of drugs and um, digital goods is the other thing, so stolen credit cards and stolen information. They're the main things that get sold. But there's also a lot of much smaller niche markets. So you might find a market that only sells psychedelics. There's a few of those, so only you know LSD or MDMA. Um, or you might find one that only sells marijuana. So there are several niche markets around, but there are still a few of the mass markets as well. Talking about stolen IDs and things like that, why is Telstra using your fake ID? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Someone just sent me that saying that they were um, uh, signing up for a prepaid SIM card and when it came up to the sample, they had um, a, an ID that I had acquired from Silk Road several years ago and uh, written up on my blog. So I had a, a, a um, photograph of this ID on my blog, uh, New South Wales dri Driver's Licence, but it um, was in the name of Daenerys Targaryen. <laughs> <laughs> so it was quite obviously fake. But, yeah, Telstra seemed to decide that that was what they were going to use. <laughs> That's terrific. That's terrific. The third part of the book 
it really does dip into what is quite appropriately titled the darkest section of the web. And it's in this area, we're not going to dig too deep because of the nature of what, what the content is, but this is where you've had to, and you've suggested you've even forced yourself to, to explore the world of hurt core, which is more the, the hardcore violent pornography. And it has the child abuse and it has also the slavery and those aspects. Why did you feel the need to perhaps take that next step to show what the dark web can offer? Well, I guess um, I guess when you when you're writing a book called The Darkest Web, you you need to talk about the darkest places that it goes, and you know there's um, the a lot of people think well the drugs markets are not that bad, and then the hitmen were all scams, but then the hurt core is where it, the real evil is in the dark web, and it's. Um, what it's actually done is it's allowed people with these perversions to get together in an open open way so that they can openly talk about and um, you know exchange photographs and images and uh, and videos with each other and it's safe in the knowledge that their little space is not going to get shut down because the authorities can't shut down these sites so I think when they get together like that and they're able to chat together like that it normalizes what they do and they also try to outdo each other with their cruelty. Um, so that, that I, I guess, is probably the worst part of the dark web. Much like the, the drug culture is, you, you talked about it as building a community, and I suppose that's what these individuals are doing as well. Yeah, they're, they're building their own perverted little community. A lot of these sites that you did look at, or sorry, that you've written about, I should say more specifically, weren't doing it for profit. No, well, certainly the, the child abuse side of things is very much a sharing economy. Um, and so people, the way they, they rise up in the ranks on the, these sites is to create new material to share with other people. And, yeah, they don't do it for profit. They don't do it for money at all, which in some ways makes it even more difficult to track them down because uh, there's no Bitcoin to follow. There's no you know, money trail to follow. Um, yeah. In your investigations, did you spend any time talking to the Australian teams who were tracking these sort of people and trying to get inside to, to break them up? Uh, I certainly did with some uh, Victorian police because the uh, owner of the worst site that ever existed uh, was an Australian guy uh, here in Melbourne. And so I went along to, when they caught him, uh, I went along to his sentencing hearings. This is the trial of Matthew Graham. Matthew Graham, yeah. yeah. So it wasn't a trial because he, he pleaded guilty, but right. it was um, several hearings, several days of hearings. And um, so I spoke to some of the police involved there. And it is very much um, old-fashioned police work that does it. So it's there's no great cyber crime team or anything like that. What they do is they have to view these videos and photographs and look for things in the background that might suggest where it's taking place and who is who is doing these things. And that's how they, they track people down through that old-fashioned police work. When talking to them, did they did you sort of ask them how they compartmentalise this material, like how they go home at the end of the day and have a normal life given the exposure that they have? Yeah, well, one woman that had to document um, this particular video called Daisy's Destruction, which is a, a heinous video, she just said she's got this uh, filing cabinet in her brain and she just pops it in there and locks it away and hopes it never 
never comes open and all she can do is if she's saving some children's lives that it makes it all worthwhile. But I think it's very difficult. I don't know how they do it. Yeah, so they find the justification for that cause to, to, to drive them ever forward. Yeah. Such. When you've covered that in your book, have you ever felt the need to pursue any further from the investigation side or do you feel that's it with that darkest patch for you? For me, I, well, look, I, I mean, I didn't even view any photos or videos. I only I went into the forums where people were talking about these things and that was bad enough for me. Um, and to hear the descriptions of some of these things in the, the hearings, um, even that, you can't unhear that you, and you, you see it in your mind's eye and it's just, um, it's hard to sleep at night. So I can't imagine that I'm going to want to do too much more. Does that therefore make it, make it difficult or at least make it a challenge to continue to be an advocate for the dark web given that this corner of the dark web does exist? Um, look, it's, it's the same crimes that have always happened. They're just happening in a different place. And, uh, you know, I think, I think there's great reasons for anonymity and privacy. You know, people, people especially nowadays when we realise just how much privacy we've given up, the technologies behind Tor... Um, I think they're going to be built in more and more into our regular computers so that we do have a choice of when we're leaving our digital footprint behind or not. So I, I don't think that, you know, the dark web it's, is evil within itself. Um, it's just that it does provide tools for, you know, criminals to use it. But then so does anything. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like the old one of... Um, a, a car allows people to get away from a, a bank robbery, you know, but um, it's just a tool, really. Well, the dark web does have its uses for those you've mentioned in the book, for people like dissidents and journalists as well, and even for whistleblowers, that it does play a very, very important role because of that anonymity that it provides you with. So how often would you use it and how useful was that anonymity and tour, et cetera, to, to build your stories? Uh, well, I... I guess I don't use it the same way as other people do because I've never been anonymous on it. So I've always gone on there and said, hey, this is me, this is who I am, this is why I'm here. Um, but certainly you could use it for, you know, just private browsing or anything like that, but it tends to be a bit clunky at the moment. It's, um, you know, it's almost like going back to your dial-up days. It's that slow. So it's not, it's not that useful. Well, therefore, if you're not disguising who you are and you make mention of that when going on to Silk Road... How do they react? Because if everyone else is going on there to be anonymous and you're like, hey, I'm Eileen, <laughs> how do they react to that situation? It must be this sheer disbelief. Um, or do they feel you just don't understand how this is meant to work? No, no. Um, you know, they, some people did not like having a journalist there until I sort of pointed out, well, there were uh, certainly other journalists here. They're just not upfront about who they are. But the people that, um, that ran it were actually very open to speaking to me and uh, I think, um, and a lot of people opened up to me and gave me their stories just because I was the only person that they knew that, you know, that you had real. a name. They, 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 I was who I said I was. And, um, because anyone else could have made up any persona they liked. They could have been talking to law enforcement or whatever. They knew that they were talking to me. Well, it's that old joke that any attractive woman you speak to on the internet is obviously a 45 year old man <laughs> in a ba basement somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think a lot of that's true. When you look at your site, All Things Vice, you there's scrolling through some of the blog spots, you've said, um, I think it is, that if you have ever spoken to me, chances are the three-letter agencies know about it. Do you feel particularly monitored on an ongoing basis? 
Um, well, certainly I know that um, I am a person of interest to Homeland Security um, because they, they did contact me um, under the guise when they, they, they took over one of the um, administrators of Silk Road. They, they contacted me, I think, to find out if I knew anything and um, they also spoke to me last time I was in the US. So I do feel I am monitored, yes. Mm. So what's next, Eileen? I'm actually writing some fiction, which is based around the dark web. So, um, you know, thriller fiction. So I'm hoping that uh, I might get some traction with that. Otherwise, uh, who knows, might be another another dark web book in me, but uh, I'll see what, what comes up. Well, this seems to be a very pure piece of gonzo journalism because you are a part of each of these stories. You know, your experiences drive that middle part of the book, especially. And the first third is very much about you traveling, trying to get, you know, the insights to these guys who've been arrested around Silk Road. Have you enjoyed the experience of actually throwing yourself into the story, being part of it? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that's the only way I could ever do it, I think. And certainly um, meeting a lot of the people behind Silk Road, it's always interesting when you've uh, been speaking to someone who's been anonymous for all these years and then all of a sudden you get to meet that person. Um, it's been interesting to see how much they are, what you think they are. Um, and, yeah, the, the whole Beast of Mafia part in the middle, that, that just... I don't know how that happened, it's just, <laughs> um, but it happened, um, yeah. Well, I, I suppose if you go looking for hitmen, eventually one will find you <laughs> in some right. form. Yes. What is your hope for the dark web? Um, look, I don't know. I, I hope that it does become more integrated into our regular browsing um, so that we, we can have our control over our, our digital footprint and decide, you know, when we're going to give up information about ourselves and to whom and have a lot more control over that. Eileen, it's a fascinating book. It's well worth reading. And um, the nature of the nefarious characters is just absolutely enthralling. So if you're off to write fiction, I, I, it's going to have to be pretty strong to beat some of the ridiculous factual <laughs> stories you've already reported. Yeah, I think uh, in this case, a lot of a fact is a lot stranger than fiction. Eileen, thank you so much for coming in today and telling your story. Thanks very much, James. And you can find Eileen's books online and in stores right now. You can also find Eileen at her website, www.allthingsvice.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at ConversationsWW and also like us on Facebook. And you can also leave a review, which would be greatly appreciated, on iTunes. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.